The text for our sermon this morning is 2 Samuel 6, and the verses that we are going to read will be up here on the overhead. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. Therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Well, we'll call the kids down to the front now for their children's sermon. Well, in our Bible story this morning, three things happen. First, David decides to move God's ark to Jerusalem. Secondly, God kills a man named Uzzah for touching the ark. And so David leaves the ark at the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And then thirdly, three months later, David decides to try again. And this time they're going to move the ark the way God's law commanded. Now, I want to tell you about this third thing. First of all, we have to remember what the ark was and what it meant. The ark of the covenant was a special wooden box all covered in gold. And on the corners of the box, there were rings so that you could slide long poles into them. And that's how the ark was supposed to be carried. If you look at that window right there, you can see the box with the long poles on the side. Only certain men, the son from the family of a man named Kohath, who was from the family of Levi, only they were allowed to carry the ark, and no one was ever, ever allowed to touch it with their hands. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments, the stones on which God wrote His law with His own finger. The ark had a lid, and on the lid there were two golden angels who were stretching out their wings towards each other. The angels covered their faces with their wings to show that God's law is so holy that even angels can't bear to look on it. Imagine something so beautiful that it hurts your eyes to look on. 
the wings of the angels met right in the middle of the lid. And that spot right there was called the mercy seat. And it was a picture of God's throne. What's a throne? The seat a king sits on, right? It taught the people that a merciful God sat on his throne ruling over his people. And every year, once a year, a special sacrifice was offered for the people, and the priest would take the blood from that sacrifice and pour it right on the mercy seat. Those old sacrifices were pictures for God's people of Jesus dying for their sins. And so the ark was also a picture of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for the sins of his people. So you can understand why David wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was the new capital of the kingdom. And so if the ark was there, it showed David and everyone else in Israel that God was really their king. After that first failed try to move the ark, David and the people try again. And David is so excited about having the ark in Jerusalem that he takes off his heavy royal robe and he starts singing and dancing for joy. Well, his wife looks out the window to see what all the noise is and she sees David singing and dancing. And instead of being happy that God's ark will now be near her home, in her heart she laughs and makes fun of David and thinks that he's acting like a fool. Well, when he came home, she met him at the door and said something like, you acted like an idiot out there today, dancing around without your robe on. Now, David scolded her for this. You see, he knew that God is the true king, and so he should be happy and excited that God's throne was being placed in Jerusalem. Now, the lesson that I want you to learn from this story is that if you try to serve God, if you always try to be careful to obey God's word, if you always think and talk about Jesus, many people, even people who go to church, will laugh and make fun of you. Why do you always have to talk about God? You're no fun. Look at Mr. Goody Two-Shoes over there praying again. David loved God, so he didn't care what people said or thought about his love for God. And the story ends by telling us that God never gave this woman, Michal, never gave her any children. Now, that was a very serious form of punishment. God would never allow her to be a mother so that she wouldn't teach her children to laugh at people who were serious about serving God. And also, God had promised that Jesus would be born from the family of David. So if Michal never had any children, then Jesus would never come from her line. You know, grandparents like to brag about their grandchildren, right? My son's a pilot. My daughter's a painter. My son's on the honor roll. My grandson's on the honor roll, right? No one would ever be able to say, oh, Jesus came from the family of Michal. That was her punishment for making fun of David for worshiping God. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon. And after we pray, you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. 
May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of His gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of Thee and of Jesus our Lord. For His name's sake, amen. Quick recap of the chapter. The chapter tells us how David set about to reestablish the purity of God's worship. At first, he and the people went about it in the wrong way, and they paid a heavy price for their casual treatment of divine things. David comes to his senses and re-embarks on the mission to get the ark to Jerusalem. And then the chapter ends with a sad commentary about David's wife, Michal, mocking David in her heart, mocking his zeal for God. So our outline this morning runs thus. Number one, noble intention. Number two, deformed execution. And number three, reformed worship. Under the heading of noble intention, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned twice during the whole reign of Saul. The first time we find one of Eli's descendants carrying it onto the battlefield like his wicked ancestors had done generations earlier. And secondly, we find it stored in some guy's house for decades. Israel had gotten it back from the Philistines, but they'd locked it up in storage somewhere. So what difference did that make? Now that David's throne was secured in Jerusalem, he pursued a course of reformation. God's worship must be established as God intended it, and therefore the ark must be brought to the royal city near him to be the symbol of God's reign. The ark was God's throne among his people. It portrayed the gospel, and therefore it too was a foreshadowing of Christ. Let's talk about the ark for a minute. Why did the ark exist in the first place? God gave it to his people. The Ark of the Covenant signified God's throne among His people. The layout of the tabernacle was the layout of a royal palace. In the center of a palace is the throne. In the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And inside this most sacred room lie the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark were the tables of the law, which taught that the law is at the heart of the covenant. And that's not good news for sinners. The good news was that the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. The lid, as you can see from the window over there, had two angels with their wings out blocking their faces. And this signified that even the holiest of angels cannot bear the sight of God's infinite holiness. And God's infinite holiness is represented by His law. Their wings met each other right in the middle, right in the center of the ark's lid. And that spot was called the mercy seat. When the high priest entered the, offered sacrifice on the day of atonement, he poured blood, the blood of the sacrifice, right on the mercy seat. So this was a visual representation of the gospel. God is just. Sin must be judged God cannot, consistently with His own nature, turn a blind eye to sin. He must judge it fully. But God is also merciful. If a sinless substitute can be found and dies in the place of the guilty sinner, the guilty sinner can be forgiven. And this act was the very core of Old Testament religion. God sat as king over His people, ruling in mercy. And His very throne was called the mercy seat. 
Throughout Israel's wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle, and therefore the the ark, was always at the center of Israel's camp. And that signified the church being built upon God's law and God ruling over His church in mercy. And so we can see the significance of the fact that David was restoring the ark to its central place. Now that the nation had a capital city, Jerusalem, that's where the ark belonged. Noble as the intention was, though, God is still God. God is holy. And He Himself says, I will be honored by them that draw near unto me. Good intentions and good motives are are fine and dandy, but they aren't enough. God must be approached in the way that He has stipulated. We don't get to pull a Waylon Jennings and worship God in our own way. Anything other than worship according to God's command is idolatry. And nothing really demonstrates the wickedness of man's heart more than his insistence on worshiping in his own way. The tenacity with which people hold this idea is nothing short of dumbfounding. God says, if you approach me, you must do it in this way. And we say, forget that, I'm going to do it my own way, like it or lump it. And the suggestion that God won't accept that kind of worship angers people. And that brings us to our second point, the deformed execution. And under this heading, I want to make three observations. First, Uzzah's offense seems very small. In fact, our first instinct is to question whether it was an offense. I mean, think of the alternative. If he didn't reach out his hand to steady the ark, what might have happened? The ark could have fallen on the ground. Could could he have stood by and watched this happen? So on the surface, we feel like Uzzah acted with, with good intention to preserve the reputation of the ark. Secondly, the reason why God was so severe is because touching the ark was strictly forbidden by the law under pain of death. The punishment seems severe to us, but that's because we don't see or appreciate the fearsome reality of God's holiness. Remember what the ark signified. The ark foreshadowed Christ. The ark depicted the gospel. The ark represented God's throne among His people. And God will destroy any man who dares put his filthy hands on these sacred things. Matthew Henry says, God saw the presumption and irreverence of Uzzah's heart. Perhaps he he affected to show before the great assembly how bold he could make with the ark, having been so long acquainted with it. Familiarity breeds contempt, even when the object of our familiarity is the most sacred gospel of salvation. God will not permit men to defile his sacred things with their dirty hands. There is no motive good enough to handle divine things casually. Even when it looks like the ark is tottering and may fall shamefully to the ground, God will not be aided by sinners. God can defend His own honor. He doesn't need Uzzah to come to His rescue. The Israelites may have imagined that they were doing God a favor by bringing Him out of storage after 40 years. When God killed Uzzah, He disabused them of that folly. Just because they let the ark be hid away in some guy's closet for 40 years didn't give them the right to forego the due respect required by God's law. So God taught them to always 
treat divine things with reverence and holy fear. Thirdly, there is nothing small when God's Word speaks to it. And this is extremely important, and we're going to come back to it in the conclusion. We must understand that if God's Word addresses something, no matter how trivial it may seem to us, God's Word must be honored. The 4th century preacher John Chrysostom wrote, A lack of zeal in small things is the cause of all our calamities. And because slight errors escape fitting correction, great ones creep in. Now this leads us to a couple of important observations. A, God's law expressly commanded that though the Kohathites were to carry the ark by the poles, they were never, never to touch any holy thing lest they die. Numbers 4.15 could not be more explicit. Uzzah's long familiarity with the ark might have given him occasion to be presumptuous, but it didn't give him excuse. You know, Martin Luther wrote that he almost fainted the first time he officiated at the Lord's Supper. The fearsome reality of what he was engaged in scared him to death. Meanwhile, many people have been in and around church things for so long they can barely keep their minds in the building during the worship service on the Lord's Day. B, Uzzah's punishment was great. The anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and God killed him on the spot. There he sinned, there he died. He was in the act of transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and even the mercy seat would not save him. The punishment tells us God's assessment of his act. And one lesson the story of Uzzah teaches us is that God does not accept our help, much less does he need it. This situation would never have arisen had they carried the ark the way they were supposed to. There would have been no oxen to stumble if the ark had been carried with its poles on the shoulders of the Levites as the law commanded. Before we move on to our, our next point, I want to note David's feelings on this occasion. It's clear that they weren't as they should have been. He should have humbled himself, confessed his sin, acknowledged God's righteousness, and then proceeded with the work at hand. Instead, he was angry. And he wasn't angry that Uzzah had insulted God. He was displeased that God had vindicated his holiness. The Bible uses the same word of David's displeasure as it does for God's anger. God was angry, and so David was angry. And this was surely a great sin. Doesn't God have the right to assert his own honor? Doesn't God have the right to preserve the integrity of his throne? Shall mortal man presume to arraign his righteousness or charge him with, 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 with wrongdoing? It is not for us to be displeased with anything God does. Noble intentions do not outweigh improper procedure. I know that we have a hard time believing that. We can't bring ourselves to believe that God would reject worship or service that doesn't meet certain specifications. But the story teaches us otherwise. In fact, the whole Old Testament teaches that. Surely you've noticed the minute details that God gave regarding every aspect of worship. God didn't let Moses design the tabernacle. God wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger. God designed the tabernacle, the ark, the altars, the procedure for offering sacrifices on those altars, and even the attire of the priests who officiated at the altars. 
Instead of following God's prescribed method, Israel copied the example of the Philistines. Instead of using the poles and carrying the ark on the shoulders of the Levites, they copied the Philistines and placed it in an ox cart. It doesn't appear to me a a mere oversight. All the events of this day were planned. They were behaving as if the law given in the wilderness were now obsolete. And in a small matter like this, any method the people chose would be good enough. God should just be happy that they're bringing him out of storage. And so they substituted a heathen example for a divine rule in the worship of God. And this ain't the last time that's happened. Before Christ came, God taught moral truth through ceremony. And we must remember that when we're tempted to view the punishment as too severe. The punishment was like the punishment of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who offered strange fire before the Lord. And the great lesson for us is to beware of following our own devices in the worship of God when we have clear instructions in His Word for how we are to worship Him. If God was offended, then David should have known that he had good reason. David and the people should have accepted God's judgment, humbled themselves, and sought forgiveness for the negligent way in which they approached such a solemn service. Instead, David reacts in anger as if God is just impossible to please. And so he leaves the ark in the house of Obed-Edom and returns to Jerusalem in a spirit completely opposite to that in which he had set out. You see, that's the very thing I alluded to earlier. David's behavior expresses our natural reaction when we read this story. It annoys us that God is such a stickler. You're impossible to please. You see, we're such idolaters in heart that if we can't worship God in our own way, then God is just being difficult. One reason many Christians don't read the Old Testament is because of stories like this. They make us uncomfortable. They upset our concept of God. It's embarrassing for us to have people think that the God we worship behaves like this. And now to our third point, reformed worship. Now, our text shows us two things. First, the proper and respectful approach to God, and secondly, the mocking spirit of nominal believers. Well, thankfully, God doesn't forsake His people. And after God broke out upon Uzzah, David was afraid to bring the ark with him to Jerusalem. And in memory of this fearful event, David named the place Perez Uzzah. Now, Perez means to break forth. Think of a a, a levee bursting. So this location would be forever known as the place where the levee broke on Uzzah. David had been afraid to take the ark in, but Obed-Edom hadn't been. Among the Philistines, the ark had brought destruction. In Perazuzah, it brought death. But in the home of Obed-Edom, it brought blessing. And Obed-Edom's experience encouraged David to reattempt his work of reformation, but to do it properly this time. In the parallel passage to ours, in the book of Chronicles, David says, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for them hath God chosen. David's behavior is markedly different this time. The Levites took a mere six steps, and he started offering sacrifices, signifying that every service man renders to God is tainted with sin, 
and needs cleansing. So with the Levites properly prepared and the sacrifices altered, the ceremony begins with a spirit of enthusiastic joy. It's as if the people instinctively know that judgment need not be feared now. And they marched forward under the smile of an approving God. And now comes a surprising turn of events. The incident with Uzzah taught us the absolute unbending necessity of worshiping God according to the letter. We are never to deviate from the stipulations He has ordained in His Word. And yet, far from that being a form of bondage, it's actually liberty. God granted to His people such a spirit of joy that they all but forgot the ritual nature of what they were doing. David's feelings were like a mighty river that had been dammed up for three months. He's almost bursting at the seams to see God's throne placed in its rightful place at the heart of his kingdom. David's soul is overwhelmed with the joy of having the symbol of God so near his home, right there on the heights where Melchizedek once reigned, right there where God had blessed Abraham. Glorious memories of the past, combined with promises of an even brighter future, excited so much emotion in David's heart that he cast aside all the formalities of royalty and danced before the Lord with the abandon of someone with nothing to lose. David forgot himself. He decreased because God had increased. God was setting his throne in Jerusalem, and David rejoiced at that. David cast off all thoughts of respectability, all the restraints of royal behavior. He wasn't king after all. God was. So he sacrificed, and he played, and he sang, and he leapt and danced before the Lord with all his might. He made a display of joy, which the cold-hearted McCall's, and she couldn't understand or sympathize with it, had the folly to despise and the cruelty to ridicule. Because she knew nothing of the true joy of serving God. To her eye, the ark was just a box. Where it was kept was of little importance. Her carnal eyes couldn't see the visions that overpowered her husband's soul. Well, the text tells us of four things that David did in his service of moving the ark to Jerusalem. Now, the first was to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The burnt offering was a fresh memorial of sin. In other words, it was a fresh confession that even in these sacred acts of divine worship, there were sins to be confessed, atoned for, and forgiven. And let me just say that this is the great difference between a true believer and the nominal believer. The nominal believer thinks that that God should just be grateful for his worship and therefore the manner and form of it is irrelevant. And therefore he can see no flaws in his service. The true believer sees a multitude of flaws and imperfections in his service and worship. William Blakey puts it this way, Our very prayers need to be purged, our tears to be wept over, our repentances repented of. The second thing David does is that he blesses the people in the name of the Lord. And this is more than just a wish for good luck. It was like the benediction with which we close our services. The benediction is more than a prayer. The benediction implies that 
These blessings are yours in Christ. They are provided. They are made out to you if you will have them by faith. When I invoke the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost over your heads, it is to assure you that if you will but accept them through faith in Jesus Christ, these great blessings are actually yours. Thirdly, David gave everyone a loaf of bread, a big piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Well, we have a potluck a couple times a year, and it's to mark special occasions. If we did it every week, it would soon become boring and empty. Jesus multiplied fish and bread a couple of times. He didn't do it every time a multitude gathered to hear him. David didn't do this at every church service. But this was a special occasion, and the meal was meant to signify the blessings of God. The Lord provides all we have need of, in body and soul. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Yes, man does not live by bread alone, but he doesn't live without bread either. This meal was a picture of God feeding their souls as well as their bodies. And the last thing that David did was that he returned and blessed his house. He didn't let the cares of state interfere with his domestic duties as a father, caring for the spiritual well-being of his family. Now, we don't know what David's regular practice was, but at least on this occasion, he was especially concerned for his household and desirous that they should share in the blessings. Despite all the imperfections of David's motley household, he wouldn't let them grow up ignorant of God. But there's a painful element to this story. Not everyone shared his zeal and devotion to God. You can just picture David getting ambushed as he walks through the front door. Michal's there lying in wait to blindside him. Oh, weren't you respectable today? At the very moment when David's soul is happiest, she pours ice water on the fire of his heart. Thankfully, David was able to shake it off, and he just told her that says more about her than it did about him. I can be a nobody before God. Your father couldn't. Michal's character could only be harmful to the spiritual life of that home. She was the type that can't stand zeal, conviction, or devotion in the things of God. In other things, zeal could be tolerated, even encouraged. Zeal, conviction, devotion can be tolerated in an artist, a musician, a movie star, in sports or hobbies, but enthusiasm about the things of God is unbearable. Now, I want you to notice that God punishes two sins in this chapter— First, he punishes the casual handling of divine things. And secondly, he punishes the ridicule of heated devotion to God. And the two sins are related, really. Divine things aren't worth handling at all, and therefore I can handle them any way I want. Uzzah handed them casually. Michal mocked zeal for them. And friends, let me warn you that God will punish both sins. We cannot come to the worship of God with a casual attitude as if God should be thanking His lucky stars that we're worshiping Him at all. We're doing Him some great big favor by moving His ark to Jerusalem. 
And God will also judge the attitude that makes life difficult for those who wish to be careful to live strictly according to God's Word. There are far too many Uzas in the visible church, and there are also far too many Michals. I have no doubt that there are many men who've wanted to shape their households according to God's will, who've striven to conform their family to the rule of Scripture, but whose zeal and efforts have been stifled and throttled by a wife who says, don't you think you're carrying this a bit too far? You're too extreme. You're overdoing it. What are people going to say? What was God's verdict, might I ask? Well, God blessed David and cursed Michal. He shut up her womb. God blotted out her memory from the earth. The text tells us that God cursed her with barrenness because she despised David's zeal. God guaranteed that no child of hers would ever sit on the throne of Israel. There is no future in God's kingdom for those who mock and belittle people who are zealous and precise in their obedience to God's will. Christian husbands and fathers, it is your solemn responsibility to tend to the spiritual welfare of your family and to be precise and meticulous about it. Christian wives and mothers, it is your solemn responsibility to never stifle your husband's zeal in providing for the spiritual well-being of your family. And Michal is an object lesson of what God does to wives who pour water on their husband's zeal for God's service. Let us pray.